Hey, and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life, which Father Michael brings into my life every day that he does the things that he does, like making amazing jokes about uh, snowstorm purchases there in Tennessee. Happy New Year to you, Father Michael. Uh, It is 2022. Two, and I'm thrilled to be back with you today. So tell me what's happening with you. Outstanding, man. Just loving life and happy to be here recording with you. We are in uh, here in Nash, Vegas. We, we have snow on the ground. We got a snowstorm yesterday, despite like last week being, uh, being, there was a day where it got up to like 70 some degrees and this week we have snow it's 19 degrees out that's not going to last the weekend but it's enough for the kids to go play in and uh as what father joseph is mentioning there's the odd supermarket purchases so if you hit kroger uh before the snow as did everyone else you would notice the things that were are now absent from the shelves are things like milk eggs and bread which to me, I can't get over. It's like the weirdest storm time purchase because all you can do with that is make French toast. Like that's just telling me it's like everyone's plan to ride out a snow in is just lots of French toast. And I mean, how far can you go on that really? It's just, it, it, it's, it's weird to me. There's so many other things you could buy, but uh, apparently everyone's making French toast and that's fine. Um, And the kids are off from school. So this was supposed to be the first day. uh, Sorry, this was supposed to be the first week back in school. Uh, They had their first day in school on Wednesday. Snow yesterday, which is ice and snow today. They had a one. They started off 2022 with a one day school week. And I know they're calling that a win because they're kids. But uh, in any event, uh, no, it's great to have them for uh, it's great to have them for another week and so forth. So, uh, but let's jump into it. What do we want to talk about today? I think that's funny. I mean, my kids out here uh, on just the other day, it started to snow, and it was it was a violent snow. It was a it was a snow warning, a, a winter event. You know, we had forty mile an hour winds, minus five temperatures, and blinding amounts of snow. I think six inches of snow fell in just a few hours. And then uh, yesterday they had the day off, air quotes, because they all had to Zoom and it was a virtual school day. Yeah, there there is no uh, thank you COVID, but there are no more uh, winds for kids to go out and play in the snow because mine were inside doing homework after the, after the liturgy of Epiphany. But uh, yeah, hey, let's, you know, having come off the, the, uh, the adrenaline and materialistic high of Christmas just uh, 13 days ago, uh, we thought it would be an interesting uh, exercise to talk about materialism and ego. Uh, so let's, let's mix those two lovely words together and uh, see where they take us, Father Michael. What's your take on that? Well, it's, uh, before we jump into that, I got to say, it, it's also, uh, it, it's also uh, interesting, let's just say interesting, that here we are, yesterday was Epiphany, we get snowed in in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places, technically, 
the local old calendars got a white Christmas. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know what to do with that. I just uh, that's that that is what it is. They got a white Christmas this year. Um, any case, uh, so materialism and ego. I think that's those are great topics. So what's really interesting, and I think as we were discussing earlier in the week when we were talking, getting ready for today, I think what's very interesting is the role that ego plays. You know, as with all things, if we look to the Greek, um, it's really interesting that the word for I in Greek, both both ancient and modern, one of those words that really hasn't changed in the various iterations of Greek since the classical period, the word for I is ego or ego. Like that's how you say it. Um, so that that's that's a real interesting thing. But even more interesting is when I'm looking at, for example, the uh, the promises of recovery programs. You know, the promises of AA. And I would invite any of our listeners to to look up the promises of AA because if you're if you're wondering what is it supposed to do, um, and, and why do we keep talking about it, the, it's a great document and it's short and it's stuff that like even if you're not an alcoholic, you're going to look at you're going to read that and say, wow, that's those are things I want. I mean, it's it, there's almost there's not much mentioned in there on not drinking. It's, it's really not about just not drinking. It's about like, no, how do you amend your character defects and how do you transform your mind and your life so that you're living differently, so that you're living, as they would put it, happy, joyous, and free. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, the living in a non-egotistical way is really the crux of what the promises hit on. Um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I need to paraphrase, but there's a line in there that says something very much like, so uh, know that I'm not quoting perfectly, but that says something very much like, um, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. So like a hallmark of sobriety is, you lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in your fellows. And that's a very interesting way of phrasing it because it's not just like I will be less selfish, but even selfish things and gain interest in others. And so like when you talk to, uh, if you talk to a sponsor, if you have someone who's like been in recovery for a while and they're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm having uh, you know, resentments, I'm upset, I'm this, I'm that one of the things they'll very often point them towards is service work. Like go do some service work. Like stop, do something that makes you not focus on you. Like go do some service work. And that could be a lot of things. Service work could be anything, but the, 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 the what defines service work is it's not to benefit you. It's to benefit someone else. Um, so if you're taking that and you're really serious about it, then selfish things is also like, is so like you know you're you're at your job and you're at your job and there's a high visibility project up and you put your name in for it that may or may not be a selfish thing but it might be so from a recovery perspective right like am i putting my name into this hat unnecessarily because I want the praises and accolades that go with it 
to stroke my own ego, despite the fact that it's going to take me away from my family more. And it was not something that I had to do. It was completely voluntary. Um, you know, my father in helping me sort of sort through my own over busy schedule, you know, he, he's pointed out to me, he's like, everything that you keep saying yes to is also a no to your family because you're not with them. And that was something I had to consider, right? And what do I keep on my plate? So, but from a recovery standpoint, like, let's take that example, that project at work, like, well, okay, you've thrown your hat in here. You want the glory and the accolades of being praised and sort of, you know, being, you know, the attaboy from the boss in your local hierarchy or whatever. Why? Is it to stroke your ego? I mean, it's not a bad thing. You're not doing something wrong, but it might be a selfish thing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the right thing to do. Um, but that's how insidiously ego can work in. It could be something that mundane. You know, it's not necessarily some dramatic, awful example. So how do we help our people out, man? Um, sort of fleshing that out and looking at it. Uh, both spiritual, like, are there, are, like, take, I'll tell you what, let me throw this one over to you. Um, can you think of any ways where certain things, even that we do is pretty certain ways we handle ministry? Where does ego come in on that? Does it? I think it does. I think that, I mean, we've talked about that before, that there are, there's a lot of things that, that we as priests do that people in general tend to do to justify their value, justify their worth. Um, and I think it's particularly easy for a priest because so much of what we do doesn't look like the work that the people in the parishes do. You know, we don't do the nine to five. We don't go and produce uh, documents. We don't go and produce a, a physical, tangible um, product at a, at a factory. We don't go and teach students with, with, uh, with our, with our time and have, uh, verifiable and testable results that can be proven and shown to people. The product that, that is being produced by, by our time, if it's being, uh, de devoted to God, uh, can take years before there's any manifestation of the work and the input. So it becomes very easy for us to justify the time that we spend at the office to be 10 or 12 hours a day sitting behind a desk, pushing paper and creating initiatives and doing all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's very easy to to um, become me and I focused in order to justify my value uh, in, in the world. Um, and I think that uh, AA has it right. And so far as when you start to do that sort of thing, maybe just maybe getting involved with some sort of work, some sort of uh, any any sort of time dedicated to other people rather than trying to justify your own value is is of good use. There's a there's a local guy that does a lot of street ministry here in Cheyenne. And he said to me one day, he said, a lot of people, in my opinion, do discipleship wrong. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, discipleship for me starts with getting people involved with charity and doing works of kindness and, and mercy towards others. And along the way, I teach them the gospel. He said, I think a lot of times we start with trying to teach people the gospel and then try to get them involved with acts of kindness and mercy. And I think that's backward. So I think that 
you know, and I think that's easy to do. We, we can, we can justify these things cognitively. We can justify these things rationally and justify ourselves in all sorts of different ways. But if my life revolves around me and my value and my worth and my output and what it is, you know, the optic that you see, the, the lens through which you see me and how I do things, then I might be wrong. Yeah. And I, well, and I think that, uh, I think that that happens, you, you know, what may, what makes it so insidious. And this is where we need to, as the body of Christ, kind of be a brotherhood that looks out for one another. Uh, because, we create that really quick by encouraging the wrong things. You know, I, I can tell you right now, I mean, you know, you mentioned being in, you know, sitting in the, at the office and pushing around papers because the people around us as priests don't necessarily understand how priestly ministry works or what you do or when you're doing it, or they, they might not even see it, you know, because, um, because there's a, there's immense, portions of priestly ministry, there, there's these big swaths of priestly ministry that are immensely intimate and personal. Like someone invites you to bless their home. And then they also want to talk to you about the heartbreak their kids are putting them through or the, their marriage troubles or the fact that, I, I mean, one thing that happens a lot, and I'm pretty sure this happened to you a lot. I know it's happened to me a lot. Someone is sick with something, but they don't want everyone knowing. Like, like they're, they've got something going on in their life that they want to talk to their priest about that's really rocking their world, but they also want privacy. And, and so they bend your ear. And guess what? If you're not in that household, you don't know that ministry is happening, right? There's no way for your other 300 families to know that ministry is happening right then. But uh, I guarantee you, and I, and I think... Uh, I, I, I believe, I think, I hope that the Christ whom I serve would agree that the most essential ministry is happening right then. But there's not necessarily an optic for it. And you're not going to write a report on that. You're going to be like, hey, guys, guess what? By the way, I was ju I just spent the last two hours comforting Mrs. Pappas because she's going through some intensely personal stuff. No, you don't do that. And, and nor should you. Right. That would be pastoral malfeasance. You should not do that. But what happens is. Like there's no optic. How does anyone know you're working? Um, if you've got a good bunch of people who aren't suspicious of how you spend your time, that's not an issue. But because a lot of our people, because a lot of our people um, don't know what the priest does and are suspicious because they view it as an employer-employee relationship because they've involved money. They want the optic. And so you can, what you'll get praised for, what you'll get applauded for, are the ego projects, are the visibility, are the, are, are the, uh, the optics. Like, oh, he's, every time I walk in here, he's in his office. That should be a problem. If every time you walk in here, he's in his office, it means, well, every time you've walked in here, he's not in the altar praying, which, by the way, as a priest, you really should go and spend some time in the altar every day that you're at the church. Even if it's just a few minutes to say a few quick prayers, that should be your lifeblood. Um, it means he's not out counseling someone. It means he's not out like I, I've, one of the things I've loved in my ministry is getting invited to talk to college classes 
because very often there'll be like a class on, um, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire or on, and they'll cover, they'll mention Orthodoxy. So who are you people? Or there was a, there was a college class back in Rochester. Um, they were, it was for social workers and they would invite people from different faiths to come and talk to them. And the question was, if we have a social work client who is an Orthodox Christian, what should we know? What are the things we should know in order to serve them well? Which is an excellent question. Um, but if, if every time you walk in the office, oh my gosh, it's great. He's pushing papers. Well, it means he's not there. He didn't get ordained to push papers. He got ordained to be there. And, um, and it boils down to what your friend said about discipleship. I think he's, I think he's onto something. That's a great point. But all of that will stroke the ego. You'll get applauded for that. You'll, you'll do, you'll do 30 years in the same parish with that. You'll get you get Ophikia and, uh, and building projects and money projects. And it'll look really good on paper. And I mean, how does your ego not get wrapped up in that? I mean, I've had like such minimal, such minimal success and glory in my own priesthood. And my ego's even wrapped up in that. Even just a little bit of minute success, my ego gets wrapped up in. And a recovery guy would say that that's spiritually intoxicating, that that's not spiritually sober. Like you got to find a way to remove your ego because it's poisonous. So, yeah, I mean, then I, I was just thinking, like, what is the result of all this ego then? I mean, there has to be there has to be some sort of net outcome from having uh, a life that revolves around myself and my own glory and my own and all the accolades and all the all the visuals, all the opportunities that I tried to receive for myself, you know, and, and that was the second half of what we said we were going to talk about this morning, I think. And that was materialism. It's like, is the material world and the gain thereof the goal of my life? And is that the net result of egoismo, of egotism? What do you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think that materialism, well, there's no other way for it. There's nothing else to happen because if you're not, if your ego isn't involved, I'm sorry, if your ego is involved, if you're doing things egotistically, as we often do, like this is something that everyone should have to check themselves on. Like, 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 um, I mean, heck, man, you could say like, hey, you know, you did the dishes tonight. Maybe you don't do the dishes a lot. You did the dishes tonight. That could be a totally egotistical thing, right? Because, you know, because now you've got some kind of manipulative request that you want to make of your wife and you're like, hey, um, but I helped out, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's even that could be egotistical, but I think materialism has to be the, I think materialism has to happen because you're, you're not, if you're not amending that character defect, if you're not trying to get your own ego out of it, if you're not trying to do the right things for the right reason, because even St. Maximus, the confessor says that unless good is done properly, it's no longer good. Um, then 
you have no choice but to arrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and keep the optics good. Um, and I think the bigger problem, and maybe you can, I want you to speak to this a little bit, because the bigger problem in leading into the materialism is what happens before that, or what, what becomes actually what I view as a vicious cycle with that, and that is mediocrity. You can't try to be great. See, to try to be, to try to, to exude areti, greatness, virtue, you would have to amend the character defects. You would have to address the things that are going wrong. You'd have to address the underlying venom and pettiness and awfulness and sin and everything else in the institution. And you'd have to say no to some stuff. You'd have to say no to some of those donors. And you'd have to say no to some of the, uh, some of the vanity projects. And you'd have to tell people, no, it's not your business who I'm visiting and when and the ministry is going on there, because if they wanted it to be your business, they would have told you. Um, you'd have to, you'd have to stay, say no to a lot of things. So you have to be mediocre, right? You keep the services to what, how, how comfortable are the people? Do they want us to cut some prayers out? Are they going to be happy? Are they going to feel good? Are they going to come? The, the, the teaching and, the, 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 the teaching in your classes and your catechism have got to be like warm vanilla pudding. Like everybody is going to be happy. No one's getting shaken up. No ideas are getting challenged. No feathers are getting ruffled. At least only the feathers that are appropriate within the community. You know, the people who are the movers and shakers, their feathers are fine. Anyone else's feathers can be ruffled, but not their feathers. So you, you've got to be mediocre. You know, St. John Chrysostom, one of the ways he ended up in exile was... He spoke the truth regardless of who was listening. And there was an empress who was doing the wrong thing. And he told her. And then he ended up in exile. We do his liturgy. We sing his praises. But we have that same dysfunctional dynamic in every one of our parishes and metropolises. Um, you've got to be mediocre. You've got to try to not really be anything and just keep everyone happy. And, rock the, and, 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 and pacified. And the only way to justify that is by having lots of material stuff. I'm keeping everyone pacified. I'm not insisting that people really fast. I'm not insisting that parents and godparents uh, really prepare, you know, are really going to bring their kids to, to church. I'm, hey, you, you showed up for communion. We're happy with that. No, we're not. But I, you know, uh, but, but I, I don't want to insist. You might not come. You're already not locked in. I, the the couple's coming for marriage. You know, it's a drive-by sacrament, but you're going to do it anyway. Well, Why? Why do we do that? It's mediocrity. It would, because if we were if we were actually serious about really maintaining the standard and integrity of the faith, we would say no to at least some of that stuff. Sometimes, but we don't. And once you accept that mediocrity, then the only thing you can do is cover over it with materialism, material things. We got a new icon project. We got a new building project. We're pumping all this money here. We're giving this award to the important family, so they keep supporting. So we're keeping our finances good. There's great metrics on the budget. Materialism is the only way to cover over mediocrity. But Christ is the one who says in the Apocalypse of John, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you from my mouth. I met a business person recently that, that said to me, Father, I have a question for you. I said, yeah, what's the question? And the, this person said, I give 
a lot of money to a lot of different charities every year. And they like to write glowing uh, thank you letters and to put them on websites and in newspapers and in television ads. And all of the accolades make me uncomfortable. Is, is it appropriate for me to feel uncomfortable when they promote so heavily what I do? To which I responded to this person, yes, you are rightfully uncomfortable. And they said, is that because in some way I'm losing my reward in heaven because of how they treat what I'm giving? And I said, yes, yes. And to which they said, okay, I'm glad to have that clarification. And it was really an astounding thing because this person is, I mean, rightfully in their own in their own way, very famous around these parts for all that they do. I mean, they give huge, huge amounts of money to a ton of really great things. But this person is very uncomfortable with how their gifts are treated. So they're going to start doing things anonymously rather than in the open because they feel uncomfortable spiritually with how their gifts are handled. Have they, ever considered, have they ever considered sponsoring a podcast? <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that they would. Um, I'm sure that they would. Uh, they they get along very well uh, with me, so I'm sure that that ask would go far. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but you know, I mean that. But that sort of attitude uh, would look, I think, to the world as uh, kind of a feeble and mediocre attitude. Like, oh come on, just suck it up and accept. Just accept. The, the the gratitude that these people are sh- are showing right I mean that's that's the justification and that looks like a lack of gratefulness on their part a lack of whatever whatever you, your opinion is of their response but that's actually the appropriate response because this person says God has given me huge increase and I give accordingly that's all. It's not because I'm some great philanthropist, but God is blessed and he requires me to in turn bless. I, I'm, I, I, you know, all joking aside, um, please congratulate this person and tell them they made the exact connection they're supposed to make. Like, like they, they, they put the right pieces into the equation and drew the right conclusion. And I hope they then therefore follow through and do the right things with it. Um, I think that this person will. God willing. And you know, what's great is, you know, what's funny is I actually know, I don't know too many rich people, but I do know a couple. And what's really interesting, a lot of them, uh, while there are some who need their ego stroked, there are some poor people who need their ego stroked too. um, A bunch of them kind of feel like they don't have anything proved. Like they kind of already have all the stuff. They've already got all their stuff. They know they're like, you know, they, they know that what they've got, they're like, we've already got all the stuff. We've already got all the toys. Um, You know, like a discreet, a discreet thank you letter on their desk is like enough, you know, to be like, Hey, I'm writing you saying thank you. Like, okay. But anonymous is better. Anonymous is better. So when you're reading, uh, because he made the exact connection that Jesus would want us to make. It's Jesus who says, woe to you when men thank you and praise you. For I tell you, you already have your reward. 
And that really does scare me when we're in our parishes and um, someone does something great and then we thank them. I'm like, did I just cheat this person out of out of something that was going to contribute to their salvation? Did I just cheat them out of something that was going to contribute to them making it into the kingdom of heaven? Now that I've thanked them, are they in trouble? Or, I don't know. In trouble is not the right word. No, but is no, that going no, to... No, no. Yeah, I, I like Christ is bigger than that, of course. But you know what I mean? Like, am I impoverishing them? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Am I impoverishing them in some way by taking that out of the kingdom of heaven? And and I think so in, again, in, in, in recovery terms, uh, when they talk about anonymity, they say anonymity is the cornerstone of our practice um, so that we may always place principles over personalities it's not like like it, it, as 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 aa has grown it's no longer become the big thing that like we have to be anonymous because we're scared someone will know that you go to a 12-step meeting that's not really even the issue it, most of the time i mean it's on the table but it's not the biggest part of the table the bigger part of the table is this needs to not become an ego-driven exercise and um, principles over personalities. It really shouldn't matter who any of you are. And, and that's also what part of like part of the founding document is that none of none of the group leaders can be professional. There can be no professionally paid AA hierarchy. It can't happen by its founding documents in order to keep it from becoming an ego exercise. It's really interesting. But um your friends on the right track and, and I pray that they do the right things. And I hope that they do all of their giving anonymously now, you know, so that they can place the principles over personalities. Like I don't need your thanks. I need the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You know, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that the bottom line for what qualifies or disqualifies someone re from receiving that reward in heaven is from whom you enjoy to take and give glory. Why did you do the thing? Was it to glorify God and to make his wonders known? Or did you do the thing to receive the glory for yourself? I think, I think that that is the bottom line. And I think that ego and materialism then uh, become, uh, we can illuminate the the interplay between the two of those from that reference point, because egoism that turns into materialism and, and the feeding of my own self-righteousness, the, the feeding of my own uh, whatever, um, then becomes a little bit clearer because then you can see the, the spiritual sickness embedded in that kind of ego that when I have to have the material gains or when I'm more focused on the gain within the church and, and the optics of it all, there is embedded with that a spiritual sickness and maybe even a spiritual addiction. And this, this is something that we as Orthodox Christians need to be aware of and, and fight against. It's like, why do you need the boat in the garage or the driveway? You may actually need it. You may it may actually be your hobby, but do you really need the boat, or is there something spiritually wrong in your soul that makes you think that acquiring that thing is going to pacify that nagging 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That that kind of nagging need that's driving you toward acquiring and having the the physical thing. Yeah, I'd agree with you. And I think like what, what really gets me on it, where I would say a good place to tell if you've crossed that line, because I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I've seen people receive more recognition than they like. And they weren't certainly after that. And I don't think, you know, like they, they were trying to do the right thing and they were trying to be discreet and anonymous. And then they got thanked more than they were comfortable with. And I don't think Christ is going to rob them of what he had been intended to do because they didn't they weren't after that and seeking it. Um, I've also seen people put on their, you know, put on very selfish shows of piety that were not sincere. And I don't think there's a reward for that. Like, I think sincerity is a bit. You know, if we're looking at the scriptures, you know, the way that God is constantly referred to as the one who weighs the hearts and minds, who who alone knows the contents of the heart. Well, I mean, then he's then that's that integrity, that sincerity um, is what he's really going to look at. And only he can really winnow through that. Um, And I think for myself, that's terrifying because my ego is so involved everywhere. Uh, I, I don't know if I have anything ever that would pass the test, which is where you, we need his, his grace and his mercy and his love. Um, I think another way here, I think where I would really draw that line, say like, how do you, how do you know if you've crossed it would be like, where, when are you, when do you start talking about taking your ball and going home? Like what's the issue over? Because I've seen, I've seen so many people like fight in parishes over, like, where does the candle stand go? Um, what color is the new carpets? Um, well, duh. I, I mean, I mean, you know, where, you know, where we, 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 where I have this, you know, my, this bench isn't here or, or, you know, even, even like musical settings for, for the singers or whatever, you know, it, then if that thing gets touched, then we're willing to walk. Well, hold on. If we're so dedicated and we say that this is the body of Christ, it's the number one priority in our life. This is the most important thing. Um, This is where salvation occurs. But there's some petty material thing, whether it's your whether it's the music you prefer for chanting or choir, whether it's the pews, the carpet, the windows, the candle stand, whatever. There's some thing that you're willing to walk away from the body of Christ for or alienate yourself from the body of Christ for, then I think that's really where that egotistical material line is. Because if you're not a liar and you really meant what you said, that this is the body of Christ and that God is here and that this is the ark of salvation, and you really meant all that, then... How could some simple, petty, material thing pull you away from it? How could even a difficult personality in the church pull you away from it? Because you weren't going there for them. You weren't going to liturgy uh, for Mr. Smith. You're going there for you. Who cares if he's a jerk? And maybe you're kind of a jerk also. But who cares? I mean, that's why I'm out of here. Because he made me mad. I was... (laughs) I was there for me, bro. Yeah. I, 
egotistical. So like in Matthew's in Ma- in Matthew 24, the only uh, the only detailed accounting of the last judgment that we get, you get the sheep and the goats. And those two groups are nearly identical. Seriously. Like they like they both use the same confession of the sh- uh, of faith. When when the sheep and the goats address Christ in his judgment, they both say Lord, Lord, Lord. So they both confess him as Lord. Great. There's both the rundown of the same actions directed at each. You know, I was hungry and you clothed. I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty and you gave me to drink. Naked you clothed me. Sick in prison you visited me. Or you did not. Okay. But here's what's interesting. So like if you put tone on what the goats say, where he says, hey, you didn't visit me. They kind of say it like, when... When did we not visit you? When did we not, when did we see all these things and not care for you, not visit you, not clothe you, not feed you? They're very aware of what they did. I've done it. I've done it. And I know what I've done. And now I have this to charge against you. You owe me. This is that manipulative thing. You owe me. Hold on. I was a great benefactor. You owe me. Uh, you didn't do it for the least of your brethren. You did it for you. Insofar as you didn't do it for the least of your brethren, you didn't do it for me. And then to the sheep, and this is how you know that's the tone to read it in. Because when he talks to the sheep, he says, hey, you guys fed me and gave me drink and clothed me and visited me. And they say, when did we do it? Now, either Christ is lying either God is lying and they didn't do those things or they did them, but their ego wasn't involved. Or they did them and it was really sincere. They were just doing it because it was the next right thing to do. Because this is what you do. This is how a Christian lives. This is how one follows Christ. We didn't do anything spectacular. We did what was expected of us. To use the language of the New Testament, what shall we say? We are but unprofitable servants doing our duty. We did so only why, that which is commanded of us, right? right. Isn't that the yeah? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So why would we? Why would we think that was noteworthy? Because they don't think it was noteworthy. That's why it's important. It was done in sincerity, without the ego, without the materialism, without the uh, the the manipulative checklist to hold over the head. That's how you know. That's the tone to read the goats in. When did we not do it? Oh, they had, they had done those things, but they knew they were doing it. They were doing it for their own selfish reasons. The sheep, they had actually done it in a Christian way. Like, we did nothing more than what was commanded. How is that special? There was humility. You see, the, that, that, and the idolatry of I. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting? And that's been the devil's, that's been the devil's trademark for a long time. Um, you know, there is in, in the Far East, right, in, uh, in certain, because here's the thing, like in, in, in India, Hindu, uh, in India, yoga is primarily, it's not like trendy stretching. It's primarily a religious meditative practice. And one of the, one of the mantras, one of the very famous mantras within meditative yoga is just, I am. I am. And the point is to see that there that even uh, even divinity and the cosmos are not uh, are not differentiated from me 
from I, from my ego, for I'm, I am synonymous with. I, really? I am synonymous with all of that. I, see, that, that's, it, this has been one of the devil's trick for millennia. Because, it, you know, there's a reason why you keep doing the basics well into black belt and jujitsu. They work. Fundamentals work. I, I mean, you know, he doesn't have to change up the classics if they keep working. Um, we just got to stop being stupid enough to fall for him all the time. That's, I think that's the thing. Satan is a, is a toothless, powerless being at this point because of Christ that only has power in the life of a Christian when we give it to him, which is the saddest and most kind of ridiculous part of the Christian life. You know, you see Christians walking around dejected and depressed and, and unhappy and almost more miserable than people in the world. And we look at them and say, come on, man, you, you've, you've entirely by choice given all kinds of power to Satan that he does not wield over you without your consent. And this, this is a very deep spiritual affliction. But I love that passage that you started to quote. It's like, when you have done all that you were commanded, say that we are lowly servants and have done only that which was required of us. Only that which was required. We didn't do anything more. We didn't do anything more. That, and that was the lead up. I, I was, um, that, we, that we can do nothing more than what was required. And anything else that we take as our own, when did we do those things and, and not do them for you, Lord? Lord, Lord, right? Well, yeah, you're, you're vain glorious. You're receiving that glory vainly. You took it to yourselves. You took it emptily because it wasn't yours to receive, you putts. You only did what was required. And, and that is the bare minimum. It's not like you did something above and beyond. You didn't go, you, you didn't go uh, to the ends of the earth for those people. You did it so you'd be seen, which isn't, e which isn't even that which was required. It's less than what was required because you didn't do it for them. You didn't do it for God. You did it for yourself. You worshiped yourself in service. So stop it. If that's how you look at service, if you do it for yourself and for feeling good and all those things, Maybe you need to, how'd they say it? You better check yourself before you break yourself or wreck yourself. <laughs> check yourself before you wreck yourself. Remember that 90s phrase? I, I, I do. and You can't the, believe I said it. <laughs> the, the, the gangster rap community of the early 90s is, is, is collectively shaking their heads right now. Sweet. <laughs> the... But yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think I think you're hundred percent correct. So well, we see this we see this play out actually. Also, we see this play out also in the way our liturgical life is structured. So what Father Joseph and I are aware of, and what a lot of other people just don't pick up on, is that the first person singular doesn't get used by the priest when he's administering the mysteries ever. Um, and that's specifically an Eastern thing. So even in the traditional Latin formulas, like if you were in a traditional Latin mass, 
um, and you were going through their traditional Latin formulas, the first person singular gets used. So like the uh, in Latin, a priest would say, Baptiz, baptizo, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or, um, you know, or, or whatever. But, or absolvo te, I absolve you. And I, an unworthy priest, absolvo te, I, and I, an unworthy priest, absolve you. The priest in the Orthodox Church, the priest never says these things. He says it's in the passive third person. Vaptizete, the servant of God is baptized. Um, the, at confession, it's the grace of the Holy Spirit through my insignificance has you loosened and forgiven. Uh, even at a wedding, you know, the servant of God, stefete, is crowned, is betrothed, you know, uh, at holy unction, is anointed. It's not, I'm doing, it's like, this is happening. Stefete is crowned, vaptizete is baptized. Who's doing it? Well, it's Christ doing it. Christ is liturgist through his priest, through his ministers, through his body. Um... So even our liturgical life is really structured to take the I, the ego, out. Um, and what makes it so treacherous is that we can put it back in in a thousand different ways, especially if we then make a an optic, a visual show of being very positive. No, 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 don't thank me. Don't thank me. And I'm going to yell, don't thank me, as loud as I can so that everyone hears me yelling it. Like we can make a show of that. You know, uh, and I think you're absolutely right in saying that the devil is, is toothless and powerless. It's, what's one of the really interesting things is um, both saints, uh, Porfirios and Paisios, of recent blessed memory, uh, back in the they died in the 90s. And they both point out that the devil has no power over the life of a Christian except the rights that we give him. And, and those get broken by confession. So... You know, like people will come to them and have all these worries about the influence of the devil. And they're, they're like the writings of not just them, but all the saints are really clear. If you're sticking close to Christ and you're sticking close to the mysteries and you're living a life of sincere repentance, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the devil. Like you should have more trust in Christ than you do fear for the devil. But we don't do that. And what's interesting is um, like when you're looking at art from the Renaissance period on, especially in, in, in Western Europe, but then what gets exported all over the world, um, you see the devil portrayed as a really fearful and, and, and hulking muscular figure with dangerous claws and talons and flaming eyes and teeth. And at that same time, they start to depict Christ as sort of a wispy, gentle, sort of effete, powerless. Like, look at that. Like, which one of these two really looks like, it, 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 which one of these two is really more awe-inspiring? Versus, and so it, that attitude then seeps into the culture where it's like, whoa, we're definitely more concerned about the devil than we are concerned about being on the wrong side of Christ, which is completely wrong. From the Christian perspective versus if you look at Byzantine iconography of Christ being tempted in the wilderness, Christ is like, you know, in the icon, he's large and in charge. And the devil is pictured as a little, you know, dark, 
knee-high figure. What St. Paisios calls tangalaki, the nuisance. Yeah, he's kind of an issue, sort of. But the Christ involved is so much bigger. The solution is so much bigger than the problem. To me, that's the interesting aspect of it, because I think that that idea of Christ as victor, Christ as conqueror, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the, the lamb of God who has overcome the world, stands victorious on the hill and the devil defeated. But when does the, when does the devil become the Renaissance figure in, in our life? Is it, is it when I'm abiding in Christ and I see him as victor and he's the one that I'm standing next to and he's the one that I'm focused on? Or does Jesus become the effete Jesus and the devil, the big, powerful guy, when I'm focused on me and I'm on Amazon feeding my materialistic uh, glory every day, having things shipped to my house with the money that I earn and the house that I bought? You know, I mean, all these, all these things that require the first person personal pronoun. My house. I have. I want. I need. You know, we, we start to feed we start to feed that that uh, that idol. We start to take care of the 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 idolatrous eye, and then all of a sudden, the powerful Orthodox Jesus and the diminutive wisp of a shadow being Satan himself are flipped on their head and become the Renaissance images of the big powerful demon. Because in that place, when I I make myself the king and I make myself the center of importance and and my wants, my desires, my perceived needs become the all-encompassing good, then in fact I do turn over the reins to Satan and he then becomes very powerful in my life, not because he was, but because I made him powerful. Yeah, and what's interesting is what's interesting is one of the one of the ancient words to one of the ancient words to to well even I mean it used to exist in English like one of the ancient words for reverence was fear right like awe we used to speak of awe in that way in English but I mean you would stand in awe so like who who is your awe towards? Well, I mean, if it's towards God, then I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm much more interested in being on the right side of God. But if, if our awe is really at the devil, and we're, we're in awe of of the uh, of the the spectacle, and the appearance, and and the, you know, and we're and we're fearful of that, then then how can we also have reverence for God? We can't really, you know. He sort of becomes the the non potent. Uh, the the non potent non actor who you know, he you know he understands we know he commanded this stuff and told us to do it ah he understands he know like you ever wonder like you ever like right like we've got like in our media and our stories like if you make a contract with the devil it's unbreakable but God understands and you know and like you could accidentally no longer. You know, you could act, like his sac. Your baptismal promises might not work, and your bap, your connection to Christ might work. But if you make a contract with the devil accidentally, it's unbreakable. In a lot of like stories, like John Milton, right? You know, uh, or, or now that wasn't Paradise Lost. That was um, oh god, what's the one I'm thinking of? Uh, the one with Meth- Mephistopheles. Ah, I'm blanking. But it was one of those classical stories. But it was the same thing, right? Faust. 
That was Faust, yeah. The Faustian bargain, right? Like, how's Faust going to get out of it? Like, really? So we've got more trust like that. And, and the reason why Faust becomes a classic story is because that's the story that the society was telling themselves in their heads. So it resonates. And it's like, yeah, we're more worried about the devil being ironclad than God. I mean, that's insane. Right. But we've bought the insanity and that plays out. I think as we've just pointed out, it plays out in our artwork. It plays out in our stories. And it's not a narrative that we have to accept. And if we don't accept that, he really is powerless. Um, you know, it's interesting, right? Like when you're reading scripture, like the second person of the Trinity, the, the, uh, the, the logos that takes flesh is the man of war described in Exodus, where it says Yahweh is a man of war. That is the second person of the Trinity. Um, when John, who we are fortunate enough today, today, is January 7th. So today is the feast day of St. John the Baptist. And the and when you when you read his preaching, like it's not of a fluffy, effete God. He, he, he's saying, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear works that befit repentance. Know before whom you stand, you know, like, like, Behold, the, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Don't lose sight that there's an axe. And or John's gospel where Christ says, you know, where Christ is so famous for telling me, oh, love, love, you know, no, no, no greater man is a love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Yeah, but he also says, he also says, you are the vine. I, I am the vine and you are the branches. Unless you abide in me as the branch abides in the vine, you can do nothing. Every branch that does not bear fruit. My father will cut off and toss into the fire and a new branch will be grafted. Like, he, this is not a fluffy guy. Uh, you know, he's the one who says, he's the one who says, your right causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then he's coming back at the end of the world as a conqueror. I mean, but we, like, but he's the one that we're going to depict but he's the one that we're going to depict as uh, as sort of wispy and and ineffectual in our art, please. I mean, look at this another way. This is a god who laughs so much at death that he walks voluntarily up to it at the cross and says, "Is that all you got?" Like that, it, like that's so weak and ineffectual. Go ahead, give me your worst. And I'm going to destroy it from the inside, defang it from the inside. And guess what? Now it's the pathway. I'm going to reclaim it. Now it's the pathway to life for all my followers. And we're all going to have this victory parade over you as we head into the kingdom. They've all got to trample over you to get into the kingdom. Like That's how we ought to be viewing death as Christians. Like This is the victory parade over which we trample the dead body of the God of death that Christ destroyed the cross. And if he was the, the lamb that slain before the foundation of the world, that means the devil was defanged before he even started. I mean, it, you know, uh, this is a God that thinks so little of any of that, that he's like, go ahead, put it on me. What do you have? Nothing, nothing, less than nothing. 
And and then at the end of at the end of time, death and Hades are thrown into the, the lake of fire. Like they're treated as entities. Yeah, and we're and and all my my body as they die, they're not circumventing you. They're trampling over you too. My body's just going to keep trampling you, and then the world's going to end. And then lake of fire. Like, but we 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 don't stand in awe of that Jesus anymore. And I think in materialism and in egotism, we lose that awe, we lose that respect. And in doing so, we lose the holiness of our worship because then it does become about like, hey, how do I like my stuff? Rather yeah, than... I, I like a fluffy Jesus because he, he, he condones my sin. He, he's okay with, with it, but how much of that, I mean, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go two different directions, but like we, we have in the West, this, these ideas that, that Anselm and other, other Western theologians laid down of, of original sin and God's anger and his need for, for atonement, right? We need this substitutionary atonement of Christ because we're just broken and sinful and we belong to the devil anyway. So, I mean, the devil is already our father and Jesus has just kind of come in and, and offered us something cool that we can latch on to, but we're really powerless toward it because we are just fallen and demonic and creaturely. There's nothing divine about you whatsoever. Not really. So you have that. And then, and then you couple this broken anthropological idea, this, this misinterpretation of what humanity is ontologically by, by the nature of its being, in other words. And then you couple that with, with this societal, insatiable appetite for, for worldly gain and to find, our, to find all of our merit and, all, and, and our success, so all the metrics of our being, all the metrics of our ontology in the world. So then you end up with, with this, this being that, that finds its success, finds its being in, in the insatiable appetite for the world, and then, then, and then that's also further warped with these broken ideas, I think, very broken Western ideas of what humanity and sin and what we are by nature. And how do we overcome that then? The, this this two-headed dragon that's fighting against humanity, how do we fight really against that? And I think you already tapped on it. And I think that it's through prayer, but but prayer is... For the Orthodox, I think, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that prayer is an ontological, a, a matter of being, something that is a matter of your very existence as a Christian, because it, because prayer is by nature repentant. Because when I pray, I am turning to, toward God and looking to him as God in some way. I'm, I'm outside of myself looking to the being. And then it's also in that moment, abiding in the vine because i'm finding that the only things in life that are good and strong and noble and wonderful are found in communing with him so i think that for me prayer is very misunderstood and that it's something that we need to take more seriously and understand more fully to overcome 
these things, but then in light of prayer, see that the Western theologians were not correct. They were not right. And our anthropology as Orthodox Christians is so much fuller and so much sweeter because it's a better, fuller, more accurate picture of what humanity is, what we're intended to be, and why it is that God created us in the first place. Yeah, it's not that, you know, it's not that, it's funny because, you know, when you're looking at some of the uh, theological systems that you mentioned with Anselm, with the reformers, with all these things, it's not that they can't find the words that they use in scripture. We would just say they're, they're, they're appraising them wrong. They're setting, you know, there's no such thing as a neutral reading of scripture or anything else. You're reading it through a particular lens. Well, if the lens and the metrics by which you appraise what you're looking at are off, you're going to come to conclusions that are off. Now, um, with that said, you know, what will, you know, like your, your street preacher friend that you mentioned earlier, like he's not an Orthodox Christian, right? So what will Christ do with him in, in, in his sincerity and sincere devotion? Well, that's Christ's business. That's not your business is not my business. Kind of like how we talked about the, uh, the, the pastoral prerogative of privacy at the beginning and at the top of the episode. Hey man, what Christ does with that sincere guy who's doing the best he can with what he knows that's Jesus's business. Um, however, comma, um, whatever he does by him will be right and just and good. Now, what does that mean? Not my business. That's Christ's business. However, when we look at that and say what these people have, you know, and let's be charitable, you know, perhaps making their best endeavors to understand how the divine economia works. They made their best endeavors. Uh, they may have been off the mark, but they're trying and what we would say is, as Orthodox Christians, having the fullness of the faith, we ought to endeavor to be on the mark in so far as we can. And so that means that at the one time, um, you know, at the one time, there's nothing that our humanity can do that is capable of redefining what God has defined. Like, we're not that powerful. So guess what? If God says you're his image and likeness, you can't undo that. You don't have the power to undo that. So to redefine humanity and say, well, because of our actions, we are now redefined as solely, utterly, uh, you know, solely, solely, utterly depraved, this and that. I'm like, well, our actions aren't that powerful. Now, you can spend eternity blaspheming his image and likeness. And neglecting it, as he says to Timothy, how shall we, if we, if we neglect, how shall we, if we neglect so great a salvation, escape con condemnation, escape being condemned? So look, that's from the New Testament. So look, that's from Paul's letter. I believe it is to Timothy. So like, look at that. So that, that, that implies, one, you can neglect this great salvation and you'll be condemned for it. So, I mean, you can take that image and likeness and do the wrong thing with it and reap the consequences of doing the wrong thing with it, but you can't redefine it because you didn't set the definition in the first place. Um, so it does become a matter of ontology. What is being? And prayer, because we are his image and likeness, prayer is meant to be not an activity, but a state of being. And that is expressed very well by uh, Elder Emilianos of Blessed Memory. Elder Emilianos of Simeno Petra in his book, uh, 
the church at prayer, the mystic liturgy of the heart, which is an excellent and short book. And it's wonderful. And has one of the best detailed uh, instructions on how to pray the Jesus prayer um, that I've ever read. And so it's, you know, you pick it, it's, it's well worth your 16 bucks that you'll spend on Amazon to get it. And it's a quick, easy read, but you know, he says, he, he says that, um, when we say the verb to pray is prosevchome, prosevhi we call prayer. And he says, he writes this out, he's like, can we say prosevhi? That literally means to send a wish towards, pros towards, and of he, a wish or request. But when we speak of the Jesus prayer, it simply gets called the evhi without the prefix. And Elder Emilianos points out that the reason for that is because when we're speaking about the prayer of the heart, it's not about a request being sent towards someone, but rather it implies that some sort of union with the object of our prayer has already been achieved because there's no longer the need for the pros in pros evhi. There's just the evhi. So the idea then is, as he puts it, that prayer becomes, to use his language, a kind of stasis, stasis, or mode of being. And that's actually consistent with how orthodoxy talks about prayer all the time. This is not something like, oh, I'm going to go do my prayers. It's um, you are going to take steps towards becoming prayer. You know, if the spirit, think about this, if we're the image and likeness of God and the spirit is God and he is God, um, and the spirit intercedes for us always with groans beyond our own understanding, then when are we not supposed to be praying? If we are his image and likeness, when are we not supposed to be imaging that? Well, it should be all the time. So we can mishandle his image, but we can't redefine it. Again, you know, so I'd say that, yeah, but but this is why orthodoxy insists so much on um, proper de theological definitions. Because the way that we understand how we approach big divine realities dictates what we'll do with it. What is the lens? There's nothing neutral. So what is the lens through which you are now going to winnow this out into your life? The lens by which you say, this is important, this isn't important. No, don't worry about that. Worry about this. I mean, look at what, I mean, look at even within our own communities. Like what's the lens by which most people in a lot of our communities worry about what they're concerned about? The lens is dropi. Oh, it's a shame. Oh, the embarrassment. Oh, I don't want my kid to make too much noise in church. The embarrassment. What? So now it's about I. I am worried about my embarrassment uh, in front of Mrs. Papadopoulos over there because she'll shoot me a look. She'll shoot me a look if Yanni makes too much noise. Okay. She shot you a look. So what? Now what? What did her look mean? Was she adoring the child in the look or was she judging? Now you've you've already made an imagination imagined a, a conclusion, right? Yeah, you can you can. I mean, it means like, and what did that do to you? Nothing, right? Really, like, okay. Well, guess what? If I'm here for her approval, and it's all about the me spectacle, and how do I look? The optic of how do I look in front of her or anyone else? Well, we got a problem because now we're not a church for Christ. But if we're here for Christ, well, I guess look all you want, but he's up there. He's not back here. I'm not him. Go look up there. Like really, yeah, we do get too focused on on the optics, but uh, you know, on on the prayer thing uh, uh, on our Rumble channel uh, here in 
at Holy Apostles, we did an, an hour-long uh, talk on, on prayer from the perspective that you and I just talked about. If you want a little bit more information on that, check out our On the Battlefield uh, Rumble channel, and, and it's posted there. Uh, it was a series called The Great Battle orthodoxy or the world so check that out and you can also find us on on the battlefield podcast on facebook and instagram and you can find us on anchor.fm at on the battlefield uh, father michael i hate to cut you off like that but i i'm almost late for an appointment so uh thank you uh for today um if you'd like to throw in any final thoughts please do that now and otherwise uh before you say anything, uh, you guys are going to be surprised at some things that happened here in 2022. We're, we're excited to, in the coming weeks, uh, tell you more, but just be prepared for some cool things happening. Yeah. And I, I think I was going to spoil some of those cool things. So we'll, I'll, I'll go I'll, for it. Okay. Say whatever you think is appropriate. Oh yeah. So, well, uh, so, uh, you can definitely still find, as of this recording, you can still find us here on anchor.fm, but, um, we are here, some you know we're in the 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 final stages of uh being picked up by ancient faith radio which we're very excited about uh that is the largest platform largest online media platform of orthodoxy today uh to include their great publishing and everything else and we are uh very very excited very much looking forward to being part of uh of their family and their branding and going on afr ancient faith radio so very soon I look forward to telling you all to find us there, um, and that is going to be uh, that's going to be a, a, a big, uh, a big wonderful blessing here in the new year. Um, and let's, you know what? I, I like where this uh, conversation on prayer as a mode of being was going. So let's let's maybe we can slide that into the next episode. Definitely, I, I really like talking about that. Because I think that people think when, and maybe most priests, when they say, oh, we'll pray about it, it is trite. But when I tell people at the parish here or in general, uh, you need to pray. I, I'm telling you that you need to participate in your own ontological, in the very own essence of your being. I'm telling you that you need to repent, that you need to, in prayer, commune with the Holy Spirit uh, by the power of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. Uh, to the glory of the Father in the world, that that you bring him into the world through your intercession, through your through your act of prayer. So yeah, I, we could talk about that for an hour easily, I think. Let's do that next time. All right, well, may the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always, and a blessed epiphany to all of you, and uh, Merry Christmas to our old calendarist friends who had a white Christmas here in Nazareth. Amen. Everybody be safe and noble out there on the battlefield. Set aside yourself and your materialism and give it and give yourself to Christ. Amen. <laughs>